Retired four-star general Stan McChrystal is the former commander of the U.S. and International Security Assistant Forces, Afghanistan, and the former commander of the nation's premier military counterterrorism force, Joint Special Operations Command. He is best known for developing and implementing a comprehensive counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan and for creating a cohesive counterterrorism organization that revolutionized the interagency operating culture. Throughout his military career, General McChrystal commanded a number of elite organizations, including the 75th Ranger Regiment, and after 9-11 until his retirement in 2010, he spent more than six years deployed to combat in a variety of leadership positions. In June 2009, the President of the United States and the Secretary General of NATO appointed him Commander of the U.S. Forces in Afghanistan and NATO ISAF. His command included more than 150,000 troops from 45 allied countries. And on August 1st, 2010, he retired from the U.S. Army. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. Thanks for joining us again on the Raven Report. I'm Chaplain Sanders. I have a very special uh, episode today. I'm on with uh, Raven 6, Colonel Matthew James, uh, current commander of the uh, 81st Brigade. And I have uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Promotable, uh, Craig Burles, who's a uh, student at, at at SAMS at the Warwick College. And then finally, we have uh, uh, General McChrystal. Would you like to say hello, sir? Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Nice to meet everybody. All right. Well, we're going to get started with uh, Colonel Rules. Uh, he has uh, some burning questions for you to kind of get the conversation going, and then we'll just kind of go from there. Sure. Uh, General McChrystal, it's, it's a great honor to uh, have you on. I've been looking forward to this, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you know, so I guess I was thinking about what I want to talk to you about. Um, first, you know, I re- remember reading your book, Team of Teams, and I remember reading it. And you, In that book, you talk about this part where you're running around the airfield, and you're reading a book called Seize the Fire about uh, Trafalgar and General Nelson. And so when I read that, I was like, well, I got to I wonder why what, what he, why he was reading that book for. So I went and got that book and uh, there was a part in there that really struck me that really kind of thing kind of hit what you I think how I interpreted your a lot of your works. There was a sense in that book that said, uh, you know, Nelson, he had found a way to, you know, the liberation of individual energies to ensure victory. And that really struck me with a lot of the things that it seems like you write about and you talk about. And I was just kind of wondering, kind of maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how you leverage kind of that idea of the liberation of individual energies to ensure victory. Well, that's a great question. And, and that's a great book and a great story of Admiral Nelson. And, you know, our perception, my perception of particularly 19th century naval battles, you got these big wooden ships where they were flogging the the uh, crew members every few days and everything was very, very constrained by the leader. In fact, they fought in lines of battle. These big men of war would would go in single file because the broadsides all went out the side. So they had set tactics. And then as I learned more about Horatio Nelson, I learned that what he did was he viewed his captains as entrepreneurs of battle. And what he thought was, if I make my individual captains and the crews that they lead effective enough, 
then when we get into the chaos of combat, which you all know well, because it never goes like you, you want it to, uh, they thought that they would be positioned to benefit from that chaos. And so in his biggest battle, Trafalgar in 1805, the whole battle plan is designed to create that chaos. So in that chaos, the advantages of his uh, fleet would come out. And in fact, he gave instructions to his captains a couple of days before the battle. And he said, no captain can do very wrong if they pull their ship alongside that of the enemy. And so what he's basically saying is, in the chaos, use your best judgment and act. And of course, his success in that particular fight was complete. So, you know, when I when I transferred that to my experience on the battlefield in Iraq, we had doctrine, we had processes, and they they can become constraining. They can corset you in what you do. And in reality, what you got to do is whatever works. And in fact, when I was a young officer, somebody taught me, if it's stupid and it works, it isn't stupid. And and I've used that ever since. You know, and I, the one thing I really, I kind of tied that into another comment you made, I think it was in that book or another one, but you know, how you kind of started viewing yourself as, you know, a lot of people when they get into leadership, they view themselves as a chess master. And it's a quote that I really liked that you used, but you kind of saw your role as kind of a gardener. And kind of tied with that, I, what I thought was unique about kind of your philosophy, what you seemed to learn was that each person was kind of a superhero in their own way. But you did such a good job with finding out what their superpower was and then just kind of like a gardener, allowing them to thrive. And then you just kind of uh, just kind of just cultivated it. I don't, is that, did I kind of have that idea right? Yeah, I, mean, I would like to claim that I had this great vision and I executed it. What I really did was I got in a situation, I'd grown up in the counter-terrorist forces, wonderfully competent people, but the, uh, the processes and culture of the command was for the commanding general to approve every operation. And so that fit into my inner desire to micromanage and be a chess master because I wanted to, to be the person who does that. And if you're in a very slow sort of a set piece fight, you know, that can work. But in a fast moving complex environment, it can't. And so I was sort of pushed into the reality that I couldn't be fast enough, couldn't be effective enough. So as I started to let go of the reins and you started to see the individual initiative and skill and innovation of, of all these people doing really well, that reinforced, okay, if I don't mess with it and it does well, maybe if I mess with it even less, it'll do better. We started to pick up speed. We started to pick up effectiveness. People had a sense of ownership for things because I wasn't micromanaging. And I, I sort of backed into being a different leader than I'd ever expected to be, but it worked so well that I became just a, a fervent believer in it. Yeah, you know, I think, I guess, where I sit, I need you. You've been retired for a few years, and so you know, in my introduction, so I'm in the senior service college here at uh, the School of Advanced Military Studies, and and all that. And I, you know, I'm not going to be critical of things, but it seems like their detention that I keep seeing here in this institution and throughout the force is we kind of recognize that the leadership model I think you're talking about in 21st century warfare to be fast and and it necessitates initiative and some of the point of action, but there's a real reluctance to allow that control. And I see it all the time. And 
it's, you know, I listen to my active component uh, classmates, you know, they constantly complain about, you know, how much decision making is being pushed up toward the general and on and on and on. And I don't know how, and, I'm, and just, I was, I guess my biggest question I really want, since I had this opportunity to talk to you is how do we, man, how does the army going to cope with this, what you discovered and what I think 21st century warfare requires kind of the leadership model you're describing initiative and rapid decision-making, but this sheer reluctance to do that because of risk and lack of control. Yeah. it's going to be hard for a number of reasons. You've, you've uh, described it well. One of the reasons is technology now allows us to reach down to the lowest member of our organization, see what they're doing if we want using a predator or something like that. And, listening and talking to them. So you you have the strings connecting to the marionette if you want to, to the entire force technologically. And so if if someone's a micromanager, this is their era. You know, they can suddenly micromanage everything. The problem is it doesn't work. And so in this era when you can micromanage better than ever before, the speed and complexity means that you've got to fight that temptation more than ever before. And we're in a very transparent world. So if a soldier does something wrong and makes a mistake, it's on the media within seconds. And so leaders become more risk averse. They're, they're more temptation to say, don't do this, or you must do this because they, they've touched the stove and they got burned. The, that's just a reality. And so culturally, the military's got to understand that unless you unleash the entities to do what they can do, you're never going to get their value. You Look at the Russian army going into Ukraine. It's almost a classic case. They've got the technology, but they couldn't let themselves use the flexibility, the communications, and all the things that they had. At least they haven't so far. And I, I imagine that they're learning as they go along. So it's a real challenge and at the highest levels if you think all the way to the white house or national level they can reach down you know that great picture from the osama bin laden raid where the president's in the room and they're all watching that on the one hand i go wow they're engaged on the other hand having grown up in the community that did that i cringe and i go oh my god when that first helicopter went down I hope nobody from the White House said, well, you know, what about X? Um, because the, you know, the danger of mischief there is just so great. Uh, and the temptation to think that because you can see something from a long way away that you know what's going on. In fact, not only you know what's going on, you know best. I learned you don't. You can watch it from 10,000 feet in high definition video. You can listen to the radio but you're not on the ground. You don't hear the crack of the bullets. You don't feel the, the cold. You don't know the dynamics. So what you can do is you can use it to inform you so that you can support that entity, you know, get reinforcements, get all those things postured. But if you reach down and start moving the chest members, you're going to screw it up. But the problem is how do you teach, you know, teach yeah, that to a huge institution? And that's, you know, that's what I, I've been struggling a lot with is, as I've been thinking about it and kind of what I just came out of with battalion command and, and different things, how does, how do you create an environment where if initiative is such important and decision-making rapid is so important, 
how do our lieutenants and sergeants and that, how do they learn that? Where, where's the laboratory where they can practice that? Because I, I don't believe that all of a sudden one day you're going to wake up and just take initiative, be audacious. I just don't believe that's just going to happen. I think that's something's practiced and learned and reinforced and rewarded. And I'm just not confident we're, we're rewarding that, we're allowing that to our junior leaders. No, I'm quite sure we're not. And, and also, sometimes our doctrine works against us as well. If you think about it, if, if you've got an armor brigade rolling across, you know, armor brigade territory, you know, open terrain or something like that, and you're trying to synchronize air and all these things, there's a desire to try to orchestrate this like a, like a ballet. And you get everything in exact timing and you're synchronized. And remember Airland Battle when it first came out, it was this symphony of combat power, all perfectly coordinated. Well, we all know that's not war. War is, is like a jazz jam session. <laughs> but, but we've got to recognize that and just make it like a jam jazz session and let those entities self-coordinate in many cases. Let them sort of constantly figure it out. But as you say, if you've never done it and you're suddenly a battalion commander and someone says, okay, show initiative, you know, you can't even look it up in the dictionary. I, uh, I appreciate I, I have a ton of things, but I'm going to let uh, Brandon and my other teammates kind of ask because I know their time's vibe. Okay, Brandon, I'll turn it over to you, brother. Well, no, so like I know you, you wrote about this in uh, in Risk, uh, a user's guide a little bit that like you've got to to build a culture that is able to um, to react to, to risk as they as they come up. If you were like, it, let's say you are that that battalion commander and you know these things, what would you do to look down to to uh, like that that second lieutenant and say like, okay, this is like you know what's the the baby steps in your in your your company live fire or, or whatever to help train him to. Uh, to operate that way. Yeah, I think the first thing is you've got to design training and we didn't do it very well in most of our careers. You've got to design training where it's going to be completely different from what people expect. You know, if you set up a platoon live fire and you've got safety in mind, you know, you want certain things to move because you just can't stand inexperienced people taking lives, but you don't have to do everything. You know, there's, there's a place for scripted live fires to learn certain things. You've got to create things where you know it's going to go horribly wrong very quickly, and there's not an approved solution. And then you've got to let them go through multiple iterations of that because you got to let them go get screwed up and say, well, figure it out. Could you do that better? And let them, they and their team do it again. Um, I think simulations now, computer simulations can help do some of that because you could put a leader, a platoon leader through, you know, countless iterations of stuff, but you've also got to get the organization on the ground and convince them that it's going to be all screwed up. You know, it's going to be, it's like Nelson, it's going to be chaos because we want it to be. Um, but, but that's a different mindset. Right. So it, like, how do you, um, as a leader, how would you go about getting people comfortable with that chaotic environment and and trying to give them a certain assurances that like acting chaotically or, or thriving in, in that chaos is not going to be the end of their career? Because I think a lot of times yeah. these people, they sit back and they think that like if this goes sideways, 
Like uh, this is going to blow back on me. And then like my kids are, aren't going to eat. But in order for us to be effective, we have to get them to like really embrace that. Hey, look, somebody could die doing this. That's always a risk. But like, you know, we're in a risky business. So can you speak to that? So. Well, I mean, that's what I see in business because I work with businesses now. Entrepreneurs are designed to go bankrupt. I mean, our bankruptcy laws are designed to let people go out and go bankrupt and still recover, don't not go to debtor's prison, so that you have entrepreneurs who swung at pitches and missed and go out and, and figure it out. And it's built into the culture. It's not perfect, but it's built into the culture. I think back to my early experiences at the National Training Center, NTC, back in early 80s when they first opened it. And it was obviously a huge step forward in realism of training. But after about a year or two of units going out and losing, what they found was if they followed doctrine, if they followed the checklist, if they stuck to their SOP, even if they lost the battle to the opposing force, when they went into this after action review, and you remember how painful those could be, they got, they were told, well, you lost because the op force is really good, but you know, you did everything right, so good. What they should have done is they should have said, you lost go out there and squat in the desert for three hours, then come in here because you should figure out a way to win. I don't care if you follow doctrine. I can't, you can't cheat, but I only care if you win. Yeah. And you, I, people I'm would sorry. have thought differently. Well, Jeremy Crystal, it's so funny you said that. Cause I, in fact, I, uh, I heard someone say, now I won't say who, but I'll just, I heard him say from a key person when I was getting ready to go to NTC, he said, you know, because I wanted to win and, you know, like we all do competitive. And the person said, wait, look, stop worrying about winning. The question is, is it's not if you win or lose. You're going to lose. But can you lose doctrinally? And that was his quote. <laughs> and that I, I, yeah. I turned to the individual. I said, say that again and hear the words that just came out of your mouth. And I've thought about that statement over and over. And I love what you just said, because that statement drove me nuts. As it should have. When I went to, I had been there and then I'd been to the, the uh, Joint Readiness Training Center several times. And then finally, when I went as a battalion commander in 2nd Ranger Battalion, I had been enough times I was tired of the way it, the game went. And so I had a really good unit. The Rangers were very well trained. And so I said at the beginning of the rotation, we're going to win. And they say, how are we going to win? I said, we're not going to follow counterinsurgency doctrine. We're just going to kill all the bad guys. So I, <laughs> I gave a, a mission statement that said, we're going to kill 75 in the first 24 hours. And we're going to kill all of them at the end of 48 hours. And the, the observer controllers lost their minds. They go, that's BS. You can't do that. Boom, 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 boom. I said, hey, in this environment, that's what it takes to win. I'm not saying it's realistic for real counterinsurgency or anything like that. But in this battlefield, as you've set it up, that's what we can do to win. And we went out there and it worked. And they still criticized us afterward. They said, you know, that you were gamesmanship. I said, hey, you know, we just decided to win. We just had enough of it. I, I think if we could create a mindset similar to that, you know, when we went into Iraq, and, and some of you may remember this, we had a lot of leaders who followed doctrine that didn't work. And yet they didn't get relieved because, you know, they're kind of doing the right thing. No, if you're not, if it's not working, you're losing, you're not doing the right thing. Right. Um, that's a mindset that we have to 
reinforce. Right. So I have a, another question for you out of that book, sir. Um, so like uh, you said, in 2004, you're in 27 different uh, countries uh, across, the, across the, the world, which is crazy. We like uh, we do well to manage a couple of armories across one state. And so I was wondering, like, do you have like any best practices, uh, like lessons learned that you could pass on to us and like how y'all manage to uh, to create a uh, a single singular identity and a singular purpose and as and still be very uh, effective at accomplishing what you did because you obviously were so yeah well we were successful but but we were in a unique situation so I want to make sure I preface with that um, we had just gotten all the technology to communicate securely all the time we had secure VTC and we had enough equipment to we could connect all of our teams who we at 76 different locations in 27 countries and we had to synchronize every 24 hours because that's the speed of that war so instead of using the chain of command in its traditional way and having a meeting at this level and then the next level and which is respects the chain of command we said screw it we put everybody on the same video teleconference every day and it was 90 minutes long. And when we started it, it was 50 people and it grew to 7,500 people every day. Now, if you sit there, that sounds like madness. That sounds like, you know, meetings going wrong. But, but what it did was in that environment, the speed we're operating and the breath, we came together for a very structured conversation, not a formal briefing. And it was like going in the huddle with the quarterback. You find out what the situation is, what we're trying to do, we then didn't tell people what to do. We didn't have to. If we tell them what we're trying to do and what situation is, they figure out specifically what to do. But then we communicate constantly across the command because technology allowed that. And so essentially we are resynchronizing the entire organization every 24 hours. We thought we were doing it operationally and we were. We learned we were also doing it culturally because suddenly every person in the organization, here's the commanding general, here's all the different commanders, sees people, can actually ask questions themselves every 24 hours. And you get a cultural connection that we never had before between units and across. You see people doing their reports. So I became a great believer that that we now call it shared consciousness. We didn't call it then, that then that that forced uh, communication very intensive for an hour and a half a day allowed the next 22 and a half hours of the 24 hour cycle to be so much more informed they could go out there and they could do their things at a much higher level. Now that's not right for every organization and you know in combat, you know it's more compressed, but some version of that where you share that kind of connection on a very regular basis, I'm a believer in. You know, if I one thing I, in this program that I'm in general is uh, we go visit each of the combatant commands, which which makes it unique, right? So uh, we visited UCOM, we visited uh, SOCOM, and uh, I just got back from the Transcom, and, and anyway, the so what is, and I'm getting ready for my uh, comprehensive exam at the very end, and and I'm, I'm anticipating the question, hey, what'd you learn? And I think if I said right now where I'm sitting after visiting all the co combatant commands and seeing each one how they operate. General Mattis was right in his book when he said uh, culturally eat strategy for breakfast. And 
absolutely. I mean, each one has such a different culture and you can see how it just eats it for breakfast. And that was something that I'm really interested in your thought with is, and I think you just kind of answered it. How did you overcome the culture problem to enact the strategy? Because culture really does eat strategy for breakfast. And I'm kind of confounded with the answer to that. Yeah, it's if you think about what causes cultural connectivity, it's usually interaction. It's it's how often do you interact with somebody, either organizationally or individually. When I got into Afghanistan as, at the four-star level, we had five different divisional areas across the country run by different countries and with a lead nation. So you have 46 nations in the coalition grouped together in these five geographic areas as divisions. And I got in the country and I toured around the, the, the battlefield and I made a note of my conclusions, and then I compared it to my uh, Colonel Charlie Flynn, now the four-star in Hawaii, uh, compared his note, and we both written the same thing. We're fighting five separate wars. We were fighting five separate strategies, countless separate cultures, some of them national and, and whatnot. And so there was no way we could get a joined-up effort unless we could take that on. Now, what we did was imperfect, but we made some. We implemented a daily call across the a video call across all the commands. And suddenly, instead of them just looking siloed at their part of the fight, they're seeing the whole and we're talking about it. There was a resistance initially because people down near Kandahar go, why do I care what's happening in Mosul? Well, you do. You do, and you, you show that picture. And over time, they start to get it. But then less obvious, but importantly, they start to pick up best practices. Yes. They start to pick up a sense of urgency. They start to pick up a number of things that you couldn't get otherwise. And the, there are a lot of challenges with technology, but one of the things it does do, it allows us to connect entities and force that interaction, at least on a digital level, when practically you can't bring everybody together, you know, on a constant basis. Uh, so like you, uh, you're, you're talking a lot about um, uh, technology. And I know, noticed that um, you said that you went out to Radio Shack and bought a $4,800 computer back when they <laughs> first came out. Uh, one, I'd just be interested just to hearing uh, your thought process leading up to that. And then like what that looked like and, and what the reception of it was. And then what, um, how can that example inform our formation in in terms of, of embracing technologies as they come out? Because like in the in that era, it was a lot slower. Now it's just it's rapidly all the time. And so, you know, I have kind of a part of my personal battle rhythm is just to constantly be reviewing what's new and how can we employ it. Um, so I'd be really interested to hear like lessons learned from from your foxhole on that. Yeah, no, I'm happy to share it. Now, share the first thing is I am really lazy, and <laughs> you know. In, in many parts of my life, that's not a good thing. In some things, it turns out to have a good side to it. And one is that I can't stand to do things slowly that can be done quickly. I can't stand to do things manually that can be automated. And so when I was in company command, I was in the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division, 0113s, and it was a great division, but this was the early days of the National Training Center. And if you remember, even at the company level, you're writing an operations order. You're either sitting down or writing it or you're typing it. And then you got the old jelly rolls to make copies of it. It was, it was god awful. 
And you had to make 27 copies at the battalion level of an operations order at the NTC. So you could go to the companies, your attachments, and then a certain number went to the observer controllers. So just producing 27 copies at a battalion level turned out to be interesting. So what we did was I personally bought this computer when I was a company commander. I put all my company hand receipts on it. I put all the op orders. I put my training schedule because it saved me time. And then when I got to be the battalion S3, I bought a slightly upgraded version, but again, my money, we mounted it in the track. We got a little Honda generator and we supported this copier that we bought, you know, one of the small ones. And what we found we could do is we pre-format all the orders, moving to contact, attack, defense, and we kept copies of old ones on the old floppy disks. So when we got a new one, what we found was 80% of your time in writing an op order is writing stuff that's written in every op order. It's just boilerplate stuff. It's really filling the blanks that where you want your thought to go. And then making the copies, we'd spend all this time doing the jelly roll thing for copies. If you could do it on the copier, you could whip them out. And so suddenly the time you were actually planning and actually executing expands because the time you're doing just make work busy, you know, mechanical stuff to physically do it goes down. Now, that was, of course, before we had connectivity. Nowadays, with connectivity, you could skip all those things. But I'm a great believer that everything you can do that is, again, repeatable or not thought, if you can make the machine do it, you suddenly have the opportunity to free up thinking and decision-making time for the organization. That makes a, makes a lot of sense. It's uh, super cool to, to hear the uh, the backstory on that, the idea of uh, mounting a, a computer into that's uh, pretty wild. Um, I also think it's 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 uh, something to model that you were willing to like see a solution and, and uh, go out and spend your own money. Like, you know, um, in our organization, like one of the, the kind of like uh, doctrinal heroes was John Boyd, who's like known as like, you know, the, the hobo colonel who goes out, who like he wasn't in it for uh, for the cash. He was in it to win. Um, can you speak to that at all? Because it's something that we definitely would want to uh, like in, embolden in our culture. So. Yeah, I mean, you think about that. How many times I'm sure in all units there are times when you either spend your own money or you spend your own extra time because you can make some difference because you have a sense of ownership for it. You know, when I was a company commander and I bought that computer, I wanted to be a better company commander. That's why I did it. I just thought I could be better if I if I could fix that problem. Um, and, you know, what money, that was a lot of money in those days. I mean, that was a ridiculous amount of money. My wife kind of rolled her eyes. But she, she understood that if it was going to make me happier in company command and a better company commander, it was worth it. And so I think that it freed up my sense of, responsibility too. And, and what I mean by that, if you've ever been in an organization where there's a ridiculous number of limitations, you've either got rules that says you can't do this, or you have to do this, or you don't have this, they become an excuse to not do stuff. I was in a command, Joint Special Operations Command as a staff officer. It was well-funded at the time, but we went on this big exercise and the command and control aircraft, it was a C-141 communications we were using, didn't work on this exercise. 
And we got in a big after action review and this Air Force colonel tells the commander, well, you know, it didn't work. Uh, sometimes just stuff doesn't work. And isn't that a shame? And General Garrison, he goes, stop. You tell me what equipment I need to buy or what specialist I need to hire or what time I need to give you. All excuses are gone. I've just taken all excuses away. You will succeed at that part of the mission. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room because it was so powerful. I think it was terrifying for the guy <laughs> because all those, you know, things you could hide behind were gone. Right. It, so um, kind of shifting gears uh, a little bit, but uh, Colonel Brawls kind of brought this up a little uh, a little bit earlier, is that like uh, you're obviously a, like a, a very uh, active reader. And uh, reading through uh, through your books myself, is I can see the thumbprints of other authors in uh, in some of your books. Like uh, uh, like we uh, both uh, uh, Major Brown and I are, are currently going through uh, the fifth discipline, and I can see elements of the fifth discipline in uh, in risk as well. And so um, my question to you is just like uh, it. There, we all have books that like were really impactful in our lives and really kind of shaped us, especially if we read them early on. What was like, what are the the, the top couple of uh, books that really kind of shaped uh, General Stanley McChrystal? Yeah, it's interesting. I like history, so I tend to read history more than anything else. I don't read, I've written some management books, but I tend not to read those. Um, <laughs> like I read General Slim's book uh, about you know, defeat into victory, where somebody had a knotty problem and they dealt with it. Or Galula's book on counterinsurgency from Algeria, very hands-on. I read a lot on the French in Indochina, not that they got it right. They got a lot of it right, but they got a lot of it wrong. And so I like to read Bernard Fall's books, you know, the Vietnam books and whatnot. I tend not to read many uh, novels, because they're they're just you know not as interesting to me, but I tend to read those things where somebody had a really tough situation. Sort of how did they wrestle their way through it? I'm reading a book right now that's fascinating called How the War Was Won, and it's a, a guy argues that World War II was won in air and sea power almost exclusively, and that everything happened on the ground. El Alamein, Normandy, really were sort of unimportant and he does it with statistics and he he argues that the amount of equipment and people who were killed at the battle of kursk or alamein or whatever statistically were tiny compared to the amount of tanks that were destroyed in aerial bombardments at factories and things like that it, it's an interesting argument but i think it's incomplete because what he doesn't take into account is a psychological part of it and, and the emotional part as well. But but I like books like that that sort of challenge why something happens and then you get a chance to, it makes you think. Right. Yeah, so like it kind of heat in on interest. So as a chaplain, like, you know, like one of my jobs is to advise a commander on, on morale. And obviously we watch Ukraine, you see like the will to fight is like this, the, the kind of deciding factor on the battleground out there. Um, and uh, but like whenever you go through school, they they don't really kind of they kind of glance over it. There's not no one really knows how to actually assess morale, assess the world of fight, and then you know yeah. tweak it, maintain it, and, and embolden it. 
So um, I guess it kind of open-ended to you, but like, is there, um, did you read any books? Have you, what, what did you learn about, about that? Like what, like advice would you have on like emboldening the will to fight and then, and, and assessing it uh, in a, in an honest re and real way uh, for your battlefield commanders? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, my brother's a chaplain. My I did not know that. My <laughs> oh yeah. My brother spent 31 years and well, he's retired now, 31 years as an army chaplain. Well, he spent the first 10 years as an infantryman, then the next 21 years as a chaplain. And he spent his last seven years as the senior chaplain at West Point. Um, so, I mean, I got a lot of chaplain advice through my career too. Uh, but, but as you know, and I think we all intuitively know, we have doctrine and we have how things work. And then we have this leadership and morale side of it. And sometimes we treat them as separate. On one day we talk about this, one day we talk about this. When we know from experience that how an organization operates is based upon how it interacts with each other, how it feels about itself, its level of confidence, the courage it derives from the values it represents, all of those things are so much more powerful than the tactical or the or the equipment side of it because it's not math. Right. Um, what I learned is if the leader doesn't spend a lot of time talking about that, if the leader doesn't talk about leadership a lot, if the leadership, if the leaders don't talk about the moral point, and they don't have to talk about it from a religious standpoint, they don't have to talk about it from a um, you know, have high morale, man. It can be more subtle than that. It's belief in the organization. It's do they do they enjoy and trust being with each other? What are those bonds? And there are a lot of things leaders can do that build and reinforce those. You know, people we talked about training, those things which force organizations to, you know, suffer together a little bit so they have shared experiences those things become the most powerful part you know we never know what a single battle is going to be like or what a war is going to be like really we think we do but we don't what we do know is it's going to be hard it's going to be chaotic it's going to be something that is unexpected and so if we create the confidence in each other and the bonds in each other that that are sinew, then you sort of sort out all that other stuff when it shows up. Sure. Hey, sir, Matt James here, commander for the 81st Strike Brigade Combat Team. Once again, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us today. Um, I believe I served with one of your kinfolk, uh, Rob McChrystal, back in 520 Infantry, circa 2005. Wow. And, yeah, so we grew up with uh, General Retired Steve Townsend, uh, initiative, mutual trust, shared understanding. So a lot of what you're saying, sir, is just music music to my ears and our audience um, to, to try to build on those things with, within our own culture. Um, but my question is not about that. It's, you know, we get advice from everywhere, whether it's observer controllers or whether it's, you know, uh, across the street at JBLM or it's, um, you know, NGB or TRADOC or FORCECOM. But as guardsmen, we get about two and a half days a month to train. So out of those hundred ideas that we receive all the time, if you had to pick two or three things to focus on with limited training time, what do you think those, those uh, would be? Yeah, Matt, it's great. First, 
you know, my nephew, Rob, you know, it's neat that you served with him and you guys work for Steve Townsend. I remember Captain Townsend. He was a smart ass young captain in the Ranger Regiment. We used to slap him around for being a smart ass. But of course, I also served with him in Iraq in combat. And I got to watch, you know, what he grew into. So your whole generation. He thought I was a smart ass too, sir. <laughs> and you probably were. And that's a good thing. Um, you know, this distills it down. Matt, I would tell you, you know your unit best, but if I was really constrained in training time in any organization, I would have at the lowest level to make sure they could do the really basic things. You know, can they shoot? Can they move? You know, can they operate their equipment? Which takes a lot of time. But then everything at the leader level, I would focus on problem solving techniques that we talked about a little earlier. Put people into uncertain environments, often together, make them sort stuff out that is almost undoubtedly not going to be what they find on the battlefield, but it will do something that builds a team. Because I think that all the other shortcomings in your training that, that every unit suffers from, you, you can fix them if you've got that kind of connectivity and that kind of confidence. You know, people used to, and I've answered this this way many times, if I was going to Afghanistan again, if, if the U.S. was going I'd say what I'd recommend is the president and all the senior leaders go whitewater rafting for a week beforehand. And don't talk about Afghanistan or war. Build a level of confidence between each other so that when you get into really difficult situations, you know that person. And, and I think then everything else can be sorted out. Without that, I don't think all the expertise in the world works. Yeah. No, so, like, a like, obviously, you're you're doing consulting now. Is that something that you regularly recommend to people? Like, so, if, so if uh, you know some Fortune 500 company to me, they're they're like, how do we fix you know our uh, our leadership? You tell them like, you know what, y'all just need to go sit out in the woods and like really have a bad time, but do it together. It can be whatever, mm -hmm. and you know, never confuse that for what you're doing. What you're doing is you're building a team that connects together because. Again, that just solves so many other problems. Um, right. Yeah, that that, uh, that gives me a, a bunch of like uh, ideas because the, the army has shifted from the strong bond train to like building strong and ready teams, and they give us a lot of latitude on what we can uh, come up with, and I can come up with some pretty ridiculous things. So <laughs> now, now I have your endorsement on that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, you know, in in general, one thing I kind of adding on what the Colonel James talked about, you know, one thing that struck me, I've kind of spent half my time active duty National Guards. I'm kind of almost right at the midpoint. And I've really kind of had a unique opportunity to see both what both kind of bring to it. And as I've reflected about that, one thing the National Guard always amazes me is the skill that you'll have in with National Guard formations and very unique skills. Uh, from, you know, I've seen where I've had a SWAT commander as a first sergeant up to someone who works at Microsoft. Um, you know, and we're talking high-end folks. There's a lot of high-end folks. And what I've always been impressed by the National Guard is a lot of these folks don't do this for their bread. But they do it because they truly, you know, love, you know, being a patriot and that kind of thing. And it never strikes me that. But the one thing that I think we miss out on is 
we keep as a national guard, we always try to mirror the active component where we just don't get the reps that they do. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on, you know, how could we better leverage the skill, the diverse skills that we have in the national guard to kind of make us more premier and take advantage of that. That makes us quite unique from the active component. Yeah, it's, it's distinctly different. As you say, there's, there can be in a national guard unit much more cohesion because it can be over time because there can be ties in the community there can be all these kinds of things sort of a homogeneous uh geographic bond that is very very powerful and as you you know there's diverse range of talents unpredictable and but but very powerful so i think that we need to look at guard units that way we need to think of them as problem solvers, put them against something that is uh, non-standard, not based upon where they come geographically and therefore they've got a certain expertise, but that they are they reflect a part of a community and community by definition has to make all the different parts work. They, they can bring that and they can solve that problem. The active army is always gonna be more similar in age, you know, it's going to be a cut through a certain way. It's going to have more time to focus, but it's going to be narrow. It's going to be almost brittle because it doesn't have, you know, lawyers and veterinarians and, and all those kinds of thing in it. So I think we need to celebrate that. It is hard to compete between a guard element and an active unit at the proficiency on certain tasks that are technologically focused and boom, boom, boom. But similarly, you're never going to have the maturity in an active unit that you're going to have in a guard unit. And so I think we ought to look at them differently. Now, the problem is we've got a small enough army now when you're in combat, you've got to have reserve and national guard units able to do a huge span of things. That's just, that's the math reality of the battlefield. But but I think if where we can, we should take the approach that you described. Well, and, you know, one of the things I've, I've, I've noticed with um, and I've kind of been thinking about with, with the Ukraine-Russia fight, you know, within the first really three, four weeks, their version of the 101st, 82nd Airborne, they were gone. And it was the second echelon that Russia depended upon to kind of flow in and, and would be the dominant force. And, you know, and I've kind of if I wrestled what the state of our kind of forces are you know, with the National Guard or what our reserve forces, I mean, in a high-intensity combat, if something was to resemble that, we'd lose a lot of those, you know, active forces divisions rapidly, and it'd be the second echelon that really have to be, you know, something, you know, that's what Russia really kind of struggled with. Um, and so I, I don't know kind of that role where you have kind of both, right? We have such a unique capability of the National Guard, but on the other hand, you kind of have the standard solution that you have to be able to fall back on, and then we rely on kind of this train-up that doesn't really kind of match in the 21st century reality. I don't really some really tough problems. I don't I, maybe what you'd think about that. Yeah. I mean, only a certain percentage of any war is going to be the kind we saw at the beginning armored columns going, you know, 200 meters or 200 kilometers in and that sort of thing. Cause wars, either the war ends real quickly because somebody does that well, or it does what it in Ukraine. And then we got into a very different war, very organic, area-based war where you're doing a whole bunch of things at once. You're building a defense, 
you're taking care of a population, you're, you're doing counterinsurgency, you're doing all of those kinds of things, which aren't the football play, you know, that only works a few times in war. You know, it, you, you may see it come again during a big offensive, but the rest of the time is this grinding down, as you describe, and that's where the differences in organizations can be leveraged. That's a great you know, point. Yeah, that that's brilliant. Yeah. I'll actually uh, prompt Colonel Burroughs on, on a question. Um, would you ask him about your uh, uh, the uh, the Delta commander who had, had like the efficiency uh, oh, meeting? Yeah. Like, I'd be very interested to hear his answer on that. So. One one thing I so see a couple years ago, I went to the battalion command course, you know, prep course here in Leavenworth, and uh, the guy sitting next to me, I can't remember his name. Super good dude. He was a Delta commander one of your organizations and anyway we just got talking at one time and he said something to me i thought was super impactful so what he said he did is every week a week or something like that regularly they kind of had a i don't he had a kind of a catchy phrase for it i'm, I'm hoping maybe you know what it is but and it was kind of like office improvement like minute but anyway the so what was they would like get around as a team and they'd say okay for the next 15 minutes or 20 minutes we're going to talk how we can improve efficiency and I call it the control A thing on PowerPoint. Like I didn't know for the longest time, if you hit control A, all of a sudden it selects everything on your PowerPoint. For the longest time, I was doing things in the most inefficient manner until someone told me, hey, if you hit control A, and I kind of call it the control A effect. And I what where they would just sit around and say, hey, you know, if you download this software, you know, it'll make things faster. If you do this and this, it struck me how much they paid attention to such a little thing to improve efficiency. And I guess that gets me to my bigger question for a general was, you know, I see this kind of that piece, but really we struggle, you know, efficiency versus effectiveness. And the army is always, you know, we're talking about efficiency, but I don't know if that really makes us more effective. Uh, so I think it kind of struck me with such a high end organization and how much they paid attention to such a little thing to maximize efficiency and to be effective. Yeah. I, the way I think of it is if efficiency is all you're looking for, and it comes at the cost of effectiveness, ultimately you're going to pay that price. Businesses run into that a lot, as you know, there's because the market and shareholders and all that put that pressure and you lose sight of effectiveness. But if you're focused on efficiency to free up more time or resources or whatever for what really matters, then suddenly it's extraordinary. You can have very low priority things in your organization and you don't want to spend time thinking about them, but you suddenly realize people spend a lot of time doing it because, yeah. you know, how they operate, just it's inefficient. If you can fix that, then you suddenly free them up to do other stuff. And that's where I think an organ, and you need all the eyes in the organization. That's where what he describes is so good because every different part of the organization sees things that, at the top, you stop seeing, you know, um, how many times have you been in an organization where suddenly you find out that your junior people have got to spend an inordinate amount of time to do a certain form or a certain way. And they stop bitching about it because they assume, you know, <laughs> and then you find out and you go, why are we doing that? Well, uh, sir, we're closing in on, on an hour. So I just kind of want to go around the horn and make sure that everybody has a, uh... All of the, the questions I asked you, anything else? Okay. 
No, sir, we we so much appreciate your time. And um, you know, we look at this forum as is not just professional development, but we're also trying to attract those problem solvers that don't wear a uniform yet uh, to get them interested in this uh, this profession and um, you know to get the, the the smartest people in our organization uh, to solve those problems that we've talked about today. Um, and so, you know, hopefully we've piqued the curiosity of, uh, of some of our listeners that don't serve in uniform yet. Yeah. yeah, let me add on that, Matt, because things like the Guard, they are a network across society and we need connections in society. We need to be connected in every way we can with people. And this is a great sinew for the, for the community and for society that's really important. Yes, sir. Makes sense. Any questions? Hey, sir, uh, Josh Brown. I'm a fly on the wall over uh, over here. So, uh, I I have nothing. Just just want to say thank you. Uh, it's been a great opportunity. My notebook's full of uh, of great stuff I took out of today. So, uh, thanks again for your time, sir. Well, you're kind. It's a pleasure to meet Josh. Good to meet you, sir. Uh, Carl Rolls. No, I. Really, I wholeheartedly uh, when, uh, when, uh, I want to thank Brandon and you really for your, this time. I mean, I've read all your books and the opportunity to speak to you. And I'm someone who's, uh, you know, walked the miles you've walked in. And I never, I am, you know, I'm not, I don't have as many years as you have, sir, but uh, I've lived long enough to know that I am tired of learning from experience. So <laughs> I want to learn from somebody else. And I, the, the school of hard knocks is terrible. So I appreciate, you know, the lessons you've shared. And again, I, I look forward to me have them record this and go back over some of your responses and, you know, some of this, you know, be able to see, I recognize that you've been able to see a lot of these things from such a broader point of view. And, and I, so I, again, thank you for the lessons learned. Thank you for your time. And uh, it was, it was meaningful and really impactful for me. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. And General Chris, we'll give you uh, the last word, sir. Yeah. Just thank you. Not just thank you for today, but thank you for what you're doing. You know, we, we take it for granted and people say, I'm going to give my life for my country and throw myself on a hand grenade. That's really not how most people give their lives. They give it day by day. They give their time, they give their energy, they give all of their skills just over time. And that makes the difference. So thanks for y'all doing that. Absolutely. Well, it's our honor, sir. And thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. Take care. All right. Thanks, Jim. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us. 